My name is Sean Jordan. Welcome to the Adaptive Outdoorsman Podcast. Here we'll be discussing the history and legacy behind disabled hunters, trappers, anglers, and how they adapt and persevere in the woods, on the line, and on the water. Welcome everyone to the podcast. I'd like to introduce my guest, Tom Ausherman, owner and lead designer for Outrider USA. Started in little college town of Boone, North Carolina. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, Sean. Thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah. Yeah. It's great for me. I get to talk to somebody that I've been meaning to talk to. I was telling previous guests about wanting to get you one of you guys on about from Outrider about the coyote because that is a pretty awesome machine. I mean, I've seen a friend of mine, mutual friend of ours, Chad Walgirl, running around with it. And I've had previous guests talk about it too, the one Lynette Jones. So to be able to talk about it and learn the history about it, it's going to be kind of cool. So when did you guys start your vision? Yeah. So it started in 2009 and originally the vision was different, uh, very different. Uh, but yeah, it started out in 2009. So we've been at it for about 14 years now. Yeah. Now what was the original version of vision or design? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, well, in 2009, I was in college and uh, poor, you know, like every college kid. Um, and uh, I was riding my bike to class every day in the mountains of Boone um, and little mountain roads and stuff and uh, no berm. And uh, I actually got grazed by <laughs> two different trucks in two different days that were passing me. And uh, I was like, man, I want to build a bike that can keep up with the flow of traffic. And so started out building high speed electric bikes that could go, you know, 40 plus miles an hour. Um, and first four or five years of the company were devoted to that. Nice. Now you guys were doing just the bikes, obviously. When did, uh, you switch over to the tricycle models? Yeah. So, uh, in 2000, I guess really in about 2008, I built my first two wheeler. And mm-hmm. rode that for a couple years, and that was uh, a trolling motor from a boat, a little Briggs and Stratton electric trolling motor uh, with some motorcycle uh, lead acid batteries, and um, so it was really just a home built project on the cheap. Um, and after I built that first unit, and went forty five miles an hour. I was like, "Hey, this regular old Trek mountain bike frame is not designed for this." Um, and so then I looked at taking all that. Uh, gear and switching it over to a three-wheeled chassis similar to the can-am with two wheels up front um Mm -hmm. kind of built first prototype of that in 09 um and that's really didn't intend to start a business but i put it online and shared what i was doing on some forums and some other guys said hey would you build one of those for me and so that's really when the company started was around 09 with those with those trikes at that time nice how many employees did you have back then um, that was really myself and, um, my neighbor across the street, actually growing up, he, uh, he and I were both motorheads and we started the LLC together. Um, and he became, he became a mechanical engineer and then very quickly realized that he could go work somewhere else and make a lot more money. So, he, uh, then it was kind of me and, and, uh, one of my closest friends that picked up the business from there. Nice. Well, I'm glad, uh, you kept with it because now you got, all all this new business and everything yeah yeah it's been quite a um 
it's been honestly quite a painful journey. You know, it's uh, starting anything is tough. Starting a vehicle company is has been, I've you know, as far as <laughs> in our case is extremely challenging. Yeah. Um, but once we really figured out what we were here for and what we were to focus on, it it became a lot easier um, in some ways. Yeah. Your sales uh, grew slowly over time then, I take it? Yeah. So we, I guess I graduated in 2011 and I sold a handful of units while I was in college, built them uh, for, for customers while I was in school, and then went at it full time in 2011, moved to Fletcher, North Carolina. Um, and we were selling enough units and building enough units to get by, just barely get by. Um, but really, when I look back, I realize I've always been into R&D and pushing boundaries, technical boundaries. And so we were really more of an R&D company than anything that was able to pay the bills by these hand-built machines that we were creating at the time. Yeah. Now, how many models have you uh, went through over time? So we started out with the Alpha, which is our high-speed road trike. Um, that unit started around 2010 and then we continued that on until actually just this past year we were continuing to build three-wheelers we discontinued them a few months ago um then we built uh what we call the nomad which is an all-terrain machine and they built the horizon which is an off-road three-wheeler so kind of three different variants of this three-wheel chassis um up until just very recently and then we introduced the coyote model or coyote uh, about two years ago, introduced the concept and then started selling them about uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, and then very quickly realized that this four-wheel compact four-wheel drive model was going to become our bread and butter um, and the three-wheelers would fall away. So they had a lot more usage off-roading or was what was the main key reason why you were wanting to switch from the four three wheeler to the four wheeler? Yeah. The, I think three wheelers just have a novelty about them. Novelty, not necessarily in a good way. Uh, mm -hmm. they, they seem like a novelty kind of vehicle, you know, the can-ams, uh, slingshots, um, <laughs> the worst case being like the old Honda three wheelers, uh, eight, three wheel ATVs with a one wheel up front. Um, yeah, I remember those. Yeah. I, uh, I didn't do so well with one of those. <laughs> no, they, they were dangerous for sure. So, mm -hmm. but you know, when we went to the four wheel platform, um, we quickly realized that our, that our sweet spot was basically how much off-road capability can you fit in the most compact package possible? So that form factor for us is the width of a doorway um, the height of the opening of the average SUV um, and the length of the average cargo area of the average SUV. So um, about 33 inches wide, 33 inches high, and uh, just shy of six foot long uh, is kind of our, our form factor, the box that this machine has to fit in. And then with that dimension set, then how much off-road four-wheel drive capability can we squeeze out of that 200-pound platform? That's nice. really our sweet spot. Oh, wow. It's only 200 pounds. Yes. Yeah, two, 200 to – so if a four-wheel drive with a single battery, lithium battery pack, is right at 200 even. 
Um, as you add more packs, it can get up to about a 250 pound machine. About how, many, how many batteries can you put on it max? So up to four max and that's 6,000 watt hours or six kilowatt hours, um, which, you know, riding hard off road, um, we see about 70, 60, 70 miles with the biggest battery pack. So it's, we want to design something that had way more range than someone would ever need. Um, so they never would have to worry about it because mm-hmm. that's always a concern with electric vehicles. It's just the concern about range. Yeah. I know that's one thing stopping me from looking at them too. Because right. the, I think I remember seeing this was a, uh, it was a video about these guys were doing, you know, drag races and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And they had this souped up, uh, gas powered vehicle and they were putting it up against the Tesla or, or something. Mm-hmm. And they literally showcased the flaws in that vehicle was the recharge time. I mean, mm-hmm. it wasn't, it had, it was fast in the pickup, but it just wasn't able to keep going fast. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it got beat out like s- almost every time, but one and the car it was going up against went the entire t- duration on one take of gas. They had to recharge the Tesla twice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's definitely the biggest challenge with electric vehicles is energy density. You know, uh, the, the amount of energy you can store in a gallon of gasoline versus, uh, eight pounds of battery. It's not even close, you know, um, yeah. but there are applications. I remember seeing this, <laughs> I remember seeing this uh, Nissan commercial where they're like, what if everything ran on gas? And they had this, uh, like this beard trimmer this guy was using and it had a little two-stroke oh, yeah. and stuff. But uh, so I think, you know, where it is right now is there's applications where it really makes sense for it to be electric and there's applications where it doesn't make a whole lot of sense yet. Um, yeah. But I think for this kind of deal, it makes a ton of sense because somebody's not going to hop on a Coyote and drive it from here, you know, from North Carolina to Pennsylvania, they're, they're just trying to get out in the woods for three or three or four hours and then ride home. Yeah. So it's perfect. So, so, that, so it could do a pretty good job of riding from your house to like a local reservoir and back in one trip and not have to worry about recharging for a while. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like with our range numbers, we're pretty pessimistic. <laughs> You know, so we always want, uh, we always want to under promise and over deliver. So right. yeah, you can see, you can get out on the thing all day and, and, uh, not have to worry with that biggest battery pack. Or if a guy just wants to save money and wants to do a single pack, wants it to be as light as possible, that's still a very capable machine at 15 miles of range on that unit as well. So dang. Yep. Don't put, count me in for uh, the reservoirs then because there's yeah. about three, two reservoirs within about 15 minutes of m- me. But yeah, you got to travel at highway speeds to get to right. a couple of them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that's, that's a, that's a gray area for sure. You know, ADA allows a lot. Um, you know, if a guy is, is trying to ride trails and stuff like that, pretty much if somebody has a disability and, and, um, you know, they have the, the ADA approval, then they can go and ride whatever trail. Um, but yeah, as far as hopping out on the interstate, this is not, you know, not the unit for that. (laughs) (laughs) 
off-roading yes driving full speed no <laughs> no right <laughs> yeah it so, it's quick for its category um you know for an off-road unit you know the track chair is a super well-known machine great machine um it's what we're most closely compared to most often um yeah. and uh totally different machine altogether but but uh as far as the category goes most guys that are getting a unit through the VA or whatever that the track chair is what would kind of fall in this category. Yeah. I've talked to the guys at a track chair and that thing, I know it has, it has power. It's definitely got the power for it, but it doesn't have the speed I've noticed from what I've been able to tell. Yes. Yeah. It's always think of the garage as like a toolbox, you know, and there's a tool for every job. Like, Mm -hmm. You're not going to go out into the woods hunting on your sport bike, probably. Um, and I think the track chair is very good for uh, particular applications. You know, if a guy's running around on a farm and and needing to do chores around the farm, um, you know, that's a great unit for that. If you got to cover a lot of ground and uh, do it in a relatively short amount of time, it's not ideal for that. You know, five miles an hour, top speed, and about 10 miles of range. Um, but, uh, like say there's a tool for every job, our machine's about 17 mile an hour top speed. So it's, it's pretty quick for what it is, especially in the woods. Um, but, uh, so you can have a blast and cover ground faster than a guy's going to be able to walk or run. (laughs) Yep. I had a previous guest on, this is way early last year. And he had spinal bifida and he went on a bear, black bear hunt and they were having trouble getting the track chair through the woods because it was so dense Mm. to track the bear because they were tracking with dogs and they end up having to carry him in and out because it was that dense. Now, would you say with the tires, with the four wheel capability, it would have had a better job with that or would have just been the same? I think where the Outrider excels is off-camber stuff, um, situations where, you know, if you're off trail and you've got to get over a log or go across a creek or whatever, um, it's light enough that even with somebody in the saddle, if you had to, you could, with a couple guys, you could pick somebody up and over an obstacle while they're still seated in the unit. Um, they could continue on. Also, the profile, you know, if you just look at the thing from the front um, and you think about the hole that it cut, the space that it takes up, what it's got to cut when you go through the woods, um, the Outrider is a lot lower profile. So that means, you know, you can go under a lot of branches and X, Y, Z. There's just a lot smaller hole that you have to punch through the woods. So off-trail navigation, the Outrider tends to do really well at that just because it is so low-profile, light, Mm. and capable. Nice. Yeah. So you, when you guys, uh, when did you guys do this Kickstarter for your, I mean, meant to ask this earlier, but when did you guys start your Kickstarter for the Outrider? Yeah, that was 2014. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's what really launched us into our own purpose-built full suspension chassis. Before that, we were really building road-going machines. Yeah. Now, is it made out of... Uh, 
steel, aluminum, or carbon fiber? It's uh, the main portion of the chassis is aluminum. The center section is an aluminum monocoque. Um, the front and rear ends are chromoly steel. Mm-hmm. Um, they bolt onto that uh, center uh, section of the frame. And then the seat is aluminum. So it's, it's yeah, chromoly steel and aluminum mixed. Hmm. Yeah, you weren't kidding when you say lightweight. Yeah, yeah, we want want to use steel where you know in the areas that take tons of abuse and then use aluminum in the areas that aren't as dynamic and and you know there's no issues in, in building them out of aluminum yeah now how many uh as uh we both uh, both were learning about i'm uh, sorry i'm ha- having one of those days today but, <laughs> that's all right no problem uh but yeah uh with welding is they're also weld pieces or were they just prefabbed or yeah tons of welding um we weld them yeah most everything chassis wise is made here in the u.s we have them welded locally so we've got aluminum welding and chromoly welding uh we try to rivet do riveted assemblies where we can kind of more aircraft style assembly for the for the aluminum pieces mm-hmm. just because welding takes a lot of time it's you know it's uh, expensive, <laughs> but uh, right. tons and tons of welding on this machine for sure. That's good. Yeah. Yep. And when you started doing uh, the uh, coyote, when did you start getting into the disabled and adaptive uh, portion of the area for the orders? Yeah, that was really with the coyote. It was at that point with the company, we were, we were really focusing on building machines for riders with disabilities. I would say 60%, maybe 65% of our orders at that point were for riders with different physical disabilities. Um, and so when the, when we started building the, building the coyote, it, it was keeping about the same percentage, I'd say 65%. Um, and that was really what pushed us into the coyote was that we had these riders doing these things on our three wheelers that, you know, I never imagined them trying to do getting into these really hairy off-road situations off camber. Mm-hmm. And I started to just think, man, I just really want to build a four wheeler so that, um, this can be as stable as possible. And, uh, although we had all the torque in the world with the single rear drive wheel, uh, there's limits to traction. And so, having four wheels would just increase the ability to to uh, get a lot more traction and stability. But yeah, to answer your question, disabled riders were the priority from the start uh, when we introduced that machine. Yeah. I noticed on uh, your website, you were t- guys were having with uh, disabled veterans and other uh, disabled groups. Have you gotten any orders from like non-for-profits or anything? Yeah, we definitely have. I've been honestly pretty surprised that our, by and large, riders with spinal cord injuries seem to, there seems to be the most funding, um, kind of private, I guess you call it private funding. There seem to be the most organizations that are uh, nonprofits that are paying for, helping pay for uh, machines for uh, riders with spinal cord injuries. But uh, other than that, some here and there for riders with MS, some for riders with ALS, but honestly, veteran riders, 
it kind of feels like right now, if you don't get funding through the VA, there's very little um, assistance that in our experience that we've seen riders get. And that's been pretty disappointing, frankly. Um, it's kind of like um, we've become so dependent on the VA for any kind of assistance that the other organizations yeah. have. <laughs> there's not much there. Um, with that said, we do have an application with the VA and I expect that it will ultimately be approved. It's just a slow road. Um, so it's a bummer to see guys that are so worthy of assistance uh, that are having trouble getting it for anything but the track chair. And um, again, I don't say that to poo poo the track chair at all. I think it's a great unit. I just would like to see more avenues for assistance out there. Yeah. More than just the track chair, having that, having, I'm trying to remember there was another one that is also big out there. It looks more like, uh, like an ATV almost probably the terrain hopper. Yep, out of, that was the one I was. Yep, that was the one mm-hmm. I was thinking about. Yep, it's a good unit too. Um, it's again, it's garage the toolbox and tool for every job. I think the terrain hopper, um, it's it's kind of it's similar to our unit in a lot of ways. It's just uh, I'd say it's a better crawler than our unit is, um, mm-hmm. but it's it weighs twice as much and it's a lot bigger. So it more it is more like an electric ATV. Um, it has mm-hmm. different seating. Um, and so it just depends what somebody's looking for. Um, you know, uh, so, so yeah, it's a good unit though. I'm a, I'm a fan of that machine. Uh, it's kind of like, uh, yeah, electric ATV where as ours is like an ultra compact, lightweight electric four wheel drive. So. Yeah. So you got the tank track chair, which can plow snow. You have the electric ATV, and then you have the uh, all-terrain uh, running gun. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's often a challenge of like, what do you call that thing? And it's like, oh, we call it an outrider. You know, that's the best description. But uh, another way to describe it would be just a ultra-compact four-wheel drive, because um, I think that's really the defining feature of it. And, you know, one that somebody can – carry in the back of an suv or on a hitch carrier you know it doesn't it's not a unit that has to be trailered which is i think that something that makes it especially unique you can carry it on a hitch trailer hitch carrier or you can put it in the back of a suv or even a station wagon or minivan nice just put a couple in the back of the pickup and bring yep. everybody <laughs> to the spot and take them yep. out and yep that's right yeah for sure yeah so how many, how many units have you guys sold so far of these, the coyote? Uh, I think we're right at about 90 machines so far. Um, yeah, so we've got, we're busy. <laughs> we've got lots of, yeah. lots of building to do and we're hiring, uh, new, new builders. And, um, and so we're really shifting all of our focus to building those and yeah that it's exciting yeah so how many units have you sold in the past like i know you were introduced it two years ago mm-hmm. and then slowly building up what's the average order size per year so it's changed through the years we've been very slowly growing through the years i'd say um we were probably selling about 50 machines, 50 hand-built machines a year. 
um, right before we started with the with the coyote. Um, and then when we came online with the coyote, it didn't quite double it, uh, but but you know I would say a little bit more than one and a half times our our normal sales. So it's been good. We've wanted to not grow too fast. You know, we see a lot of technology companies that come in and get outside funding and then they try to, you know, just hit this huge home run and then they can't support their customers. And and that's really not the way that we operate. We're very conservative uh, as far as growth goes. And so uh, we, we want to make sure that we can support all of our riders really, really well. So nice. uh, Done it carefully. Yeah, I understand uh, growing slowly but surely means you get to win the race versus uh, collapsing under your own weight. Yep, exactly. Yeah, that's why 14 years in, I've you know, it's I, I think for us it's been kind of the Toyota approach where it's like we want to build something that uh, a unit that can be somebody can hand down to their kids and, and it's just like that old tractor that it's like, God, I can't believe that thing's still running. You know, right. that old Honda dirt bike—that's really been the goal from a from a design nice. perspective. Yeah. And how many units do you get out um, per month? I mean, how on average, how fast can you produce a unit? That's what we're working on the most right now. So we're right now, so we're at about four machines a month that we're building, um, and we're. And this next batch will be building about six machines per month. Um, and then we will be at about seven, but hopefully by towards the end of the year, the end of this year, we'll be building about seven units a month. So everything's hand built, super time intensive. And um, um, that's the challenge for sure is uh, having skilled builders um, and uh, making sure that everything that leaves here is worthy of <laughs> worthy of the price that people pay for it because it's, it's not a cheap unit. No. And do, when people are purchasing the uh, Outrider, on average, how many batteries are they taking with it? So the average right now is a, is a little over two. You know, if you were to average it all out, it'd probably be mm-hmm. about two and a half. Um, I always gun for guys to just go for two because uh, that does what most anybody would want to do with the machine. Mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of just trying to sell more just because you can't, you know, a lot of people still opt for loading it and going for all four. Um, but I think two to three is a sweet spot for, for most scenarios. Cause a guy's not really going overlanding on these generally. Like, Hey, if you wanted to try to ride across some massive expanse and pull a trailer with a gen set or something, then yeah, go for four, but that's not the typical use case. So, it's typically not necessary. Yeah. So any new technologies coming up that you're wanting to bring into the Outrider? Oh, it's never ending. If I could just be in that space all the time, that's where I would always hang out. But I think that the most exciting stuff for me is tech that um, raises the bar as far as our adaptations on the machine goes. Like we just, one of our riders just outfitted their unit with power steering. Uh, he's quadriplegic. So he can, with the very slightest bit of arm strength, steer the machine, nice. um, which is great. Um, and then, so the next one we hope for is gyro-based uh, head control. So a guy can put on a headset and control it with, if he just has neck-up function. 
you yeah. know, lean forward to accelerate back to break left and right. Um, another one would be like yoke based control. So a guy and his daughter, you know, she's got a, uh, a disability and she can't steer at all. Uh, we had a rider that was interested in walking behind the unit and having a yoke so he could steer, throttle, brake, you know, for lack of a better term, almost like a wagon um, where you're walking behind or a mower, sort of like yeah. a mower with a yoke on it um, so he can control the unit. So right. um, I think I'm most excited about the adaptations in that space. And then even for potentially unmanned applications for a unit that instead of has a seat on it, it's got a cargo area where it could follow someone that's on foot um, and haul gear um, or be used in a search and rescue application or something like that. Oh, man. Yeah. That's some serious tech right there, too. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, it's it's kind of funny, you know, when you originally I was thinking about just the application we're currently using it for, but when you start to think about what can you do with a super compact, ultralight four-wheel drive chassis, whether there's a person on it or whether it's for cargo or gear, um, it starts to become interesting really fast as far as, you know, it's like when the iPad came out, it was like, well, what am I going to do with a, a, a screen and tons of computing power? Like, what am I going to use that for? And it's like, well, you can think of a lot of different applications for it. Yeah. Um, and I think it's the same way here. We're kind of just on the, on the, um, the edge of all the different applications you could have for this man run man. Right. Now, when you were doing tests, were you doing the sled drag test for max weight pullage? Yeah, we actually were just doing that today again. Um, we're continually uh, trying to increase the amount of uh, thrust that the machine has, or you could think of it as pulling power. And so we do we do drag tests up against the um, uh, one of the beams here in the shop to see how much thrust we can get out of the unit. So generally torque or thrust or, or dragging weight and top speed are at odds with one another. So as you increase the top speed of the machine, you reduce the amount of pulling power or vice versa. As you decrease the top speed, you increase the pulling power. So right. we can change the motor setup to, to, to go either way, either trade speed for torque or trade torque for speed. Right. So what's the average weight that it can tow behind it, essentially? Yeah, it's a good question. Really depends on the terrain. So, um, you know, I I was able to drag a whitetail out um, in Pennsylvania over dirt. You know, and obviously we definitely suggest using a cart uh, rather than just dragging on the dirt. and Or a sled, basically. Yeah, sled. Um, so it's feasible right now to to tow a whitetail on a sled, probably even a mule deer, like a Western muley on a sled. Um, uh, a wheel. No black bear. I don't know. It's, it's probably getting to be a little big. Um, it just depends on the weight, you know, a couple hundred pounds, I'd say, you know, 200 pounds or so is about where we're at right now. Okay. Um, for towing out, you're not going to haul an elk out unless you quarter it, you know? Um, but, um, not to say that won't be possible in a few years. We're just uh, not quite there yet. Um, considering the payload, you know, that you've got a 200 pound machine that's hauling up to a 300 pound rider and then about 200 pounds in tow. That's about our gross weight limit right now. It's about 500 pounds, you know, 300 pounds on the machine and then 200 pounds in tow on nice. a 200 pound unit. 
Yeah. Well, that's good. At least, I mean, I, you know, you can haul some serious weight now. With yeah. It. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of, it's kind of cool thinking about it as like a little, you know, it's, it's a, it's a lightweight unit and it's doing some heavy lifting for sure. Yeah. So, uh, sorry. That's okay. I see you got a German shepherd. I got one too. <laughs> I have two German shepherds. Okay, and cool. They're, right and they're on. fighting today. Play Are fighting. they? <laughs> and causing a mess in the kitchen with the water. Oh, yep. He's going to be five and a half. Are uh, they siblings or are they? Uh, they're cousins, essentially. They're cousins. So, okay. so, yeah. But, yeah, the younger one literally took the water bowl into the living room and made a mess in the kitchen. So, <laughs> And he's laying down in it. Sounds about right. We had two. We had two, and when we had a, we had a newborn, and we had to unfortunately give one of the two up because they were litter mates, and they're just too wild trying <laughs> to have that and the newborn. <laughs> yep. The older one's three years old, so she's definitely the – calmer of the ones but he is a he's he's a play fight starter so <laughs> yeah i know they're going all around all around you probably heard me say leave it to him a couple yeah, times yeah i saw him going back and forth I, yeah i know the feeling for sure <laughs> yeah so how many employees does outrider employ so far uh there's nine of us Hey, yeah, definitely a small company, right? Yep. Yeah, we are for sure. Hand built North Carolina. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of cool. It's an exciting time for sure. It's, uh, yeah, I think we're on the cusp of something here with this machine. That's really special. So. Well, I'm hoping for some yeah, specialty <laughs> on that. I mean, that's great machine. I mean, seeing the thing going rivers and everything mm -hmm. uh, streams, not rivers. Yeah. I don't know how it would deal with a river unless you put a propeller and some flotation devices on <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, we definitely can't condone anybody trying to do a river crossing. Uh, that's probably not a good idea. But uh, like, like some of those people putting up, okay, inflatable rafts on the side, ballast is on the side of it. Put a freaking uh, <laughs> trolling motor on the back. Yeah. We have officially achieved an all-terrain vehicle. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, amphibious. Uh, now, yeah, going up to the edge of streams and um, stuff to fish is great for that. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, Chad, Chad did some uh, uh, fishing off of the machine, and that's—I don't know if you've seen our bigger video, but that video—it's I think it's called "World's Lightest Four Wheel Drive." Um, has three different riders and their stories on our YouTube, Outrider YouTube channel. Um, yeah. That video is kind of cool to see some of the different applications for it. Yeah, so I know you, we were talking about Chad, but you met him two years ago, and mm -hmm. does he have his permanently, or does he have to borrow it every so often? <laughs> we send him one anytime he's got some new adventure planned. We just send it out in the, uh, in, in a wooden crate, and it lands down there in Texas, and then goes in the back of the pickup to wherever they're heading next. <laughs> right. That'd be a, that is a definitely cool thing, and I'm... Chad definitely can think up of some nice adventures. I know he just got yeah. a, I think he got an Osceola recently. I think I'd oh, pronounce okay. the turkey. When he was, so, he went I, down to Florida, right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. I, I may have mispronounced the bird's name. I'm not certain. No, I think you said it right. Nice. <laughs> 
So now, uh, have you gone hunting your whole life? or? Yeah, I grew up in Pennsylvania, South Central PA, uh, kind of near Gettysburg, and um, hunted whitetail since I was little. And uh, yeah, it's so I grew up kind of in the woods every weekend, spent all weekend in the woods on dirt bikes and mm-hmm. four-wheelers and always been a motorhead. And so kind of have been surrounded by that that world and and uh and yeah and then got into hunting mules muleys um as i got a little older i go out to montana every year with my dad to hunt mule deer so uh, eastern montana now would you say muleys are harder or easier than whitetails oh that's a good question um whitetail definitely takes more patience (laughs) he's sitting in the stand all day pennsylvania you know hunting yeah um i it's just a different skill set altogether i think that the the um hunting the wind and everything in montana um it was all new i mean that was pretty new to me you know because it was a lot more dynamic um and you know glassing these these deer and then moving in on them uh taking account for the wind mm-hmm. um if i went out there green doing it by myself i think i would have done terribly um but having a friend who knew what he's doing and, and was able to show me the ropes. Um, I would say that that Western hunting is more challenging. Uh, yeah. but then again, I grew up, you know, totally immersed in, and tree stand hunting in Pennsylvania. So um, you, ever, you ever do good God, I'm trying to think of the proper term pushing and like sitting. Driving. Yeah. Driving. Yeah. we once we got a few days in and the deer got smart in Pennsylvania, you know, there's just so much that they can hide in and they'll just, you know, these bigger, more mature, smarter bucks will just hunker down and, and just stay there, you know, in the thickets until everybody was out of the woods permanently. So when they started to get smart, um, a few days into the season, we'd start to go walk those areas. We tried to do it, without getting every, you know, I know some guys whistle and yell and all that. We didn't really do any of that, but, um, we just go to break things up a little bit and it changes the dynamic, you know, cause at that point the deer are very, very alert <laughs> and yeah. your window of opportunity is very fleeting, especially in thick, thick brush and, uh, thick hardwood. So, um, but yeah, we did definitely do a little bit of that in Pennsylvania as well. Yeah, I know uh, Indiana, we're not allowed to do uh, drive hunting at all. Mm-hmm. Not allowed to hunt over bait. Yeah, we're not allowed to in Pennsylvania either. Mm-hmm. Didn't you guys, didn't, well, didn't Pennsylvania, I know you live in North Carolina now, but didn't Pennsylvania just recently allow Sunday hunting? Yeah, yeah, they did actually. That just got pushed through. Uh, it's kind of weird, you know, you know, the first day was always Monday, Um and you know that kind of changed things but coming from north carolina now i'm driving up to spend you know the holiday with my family up in pennsylvania and hunt it does make that a little easier not having to uh miss as much work you know to be able to go up and and hunt the weekends a little bit right now have you uh since uh this and everything have you have you taken the outrider with you on the occasion yeah, yeah, I have. It uh, feels like an unfair advantage for sure in Pennsylvania where everybody else, you know, where we hunt is going up into the woods in their pickup or on an ATV. And then I'm just sneaking up there quietly on the Outrider. So, um, but 
uh, yeah, I definitely have. Sometimes when I go home, I kind of don't want to work, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, taking the bike with me as much fun as it is. It makes me think about work. And so <laughs> it's like it's like I uh, sometimes I leave it in North Carolina and just uh, make the hunt a little bit more challenging and go up in, uh, in an old Yamaha ATV and just right. let everything within a two mile radius know that I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I definitely have known people who have been successful hunting with loud instruments before. Cause it's yeah. like, what was that? Walk, <laughs> yeah. walk. They just stand there and look at it like, what the heck? Yep. And when everybody's driving one up, then I guess it's, you know, everything's yeah. running everywhere anyway. So <laughs> yeah. Now uh, for the coyote and its batteries, how does it fare during winter time? Yeah. So any, uh, electric unit, um, cold weather is going to reduce the range. Um, it's, it's probably, you know, so I would say if you're, if it's 32 degrees outside 32 Fahrenheit, um, and say you see 60 miles of range typically, um, Mm -hmm. with a, with one of the larger batteries, um, at max, it's probably going to reduce it by about 25%. So, it's, you know, 45 mile range machine instead mm-hmm. of uh, 60 miles. So it does have an impact. Um, thankfully we've got a lot of energy on board with those big lithium batteries. And so mm-hmm. it doesn't hurt it, um, as much as it would if we had designed the machine with a lot smaller batteries. Now would designing a solar paneled heater be able to, you know, just something to keep the batteries warmer than outside, would that help out or am I yeah, just it, doing pipe dreams now? No, no, it does help out. We actually insulate our battery um, enclosures just because um, it, uh, we've, we're not running the batteries hard because they are so large, so they don't really heat up so we can afford to insulate them so they have better cold weather performance. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, uh, any kind of battery heating, whether that's just storing it in your garage or actually having a small heating element on the pack itself for winter riding, uh, it does make a difference for sure. Um, and actually when you see a range decrease on a electric unit in the winter, um, that, that energy is being dissipated as heat in the battery. So, uh, that's where the, that's where the lost power is going. And so it's, uh, yeah. but if you already preheat the battery, then, then that doesn't happen really. Yeah. So. yeah. So with all these new innovation ideas that we've been coming up with, you going to implement any of them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're already doing, we already do some, um, uh, preheating on batteries. We've installed that on a customer's machine. It's an option that we could do. Um, mm-hmm. all these other technologies on, uh, as far as the adaptive stuff goes, it's definitely going to happen. It's just a question of, um, the timeline on it. And, you know, if somebody's, really really keen on a particular adaptation and we've got multiple multiple people that are asking for that then it becomes a priority and uh we you know put that in in first place as far as development goes on the machine yeah yeah i know you we were talking about how they're all custom built so pretty much you do custom builds on every single one of them so yeah yep so yep we've got every there's nothing that we build that goes on the floor and then we sell later. Um, everything has somebody's name on it. So it's, it allows it to be a lot more personalized than 
if we were just building a bunch of machines and had them on a showroom floor. Yeah. Well, what do you guys see yourself in five years? Well, I, I think that, um, right now the most, <laughs> most disappointing thing for me is seeing how, seeing the impact that this has on people's lives and, and then seeing how many people, um, we have to turn away because they, they can't afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in five years, my best case scenario would be that there, we have a nonprofit partner, um, that can seriously subsidize the cost of machines for, um, people that apply, mm-hmm. um, and that we, you know, have to turn away a very small number of people, um, from getting these machines. Um, but, and also, uh, I think also just, um, seeing the community around these, um, expand right now, you know, we've got units sold in almost every state. It's going to be exciting when there start to be multiple units in every state and, uh, we can start to have some rider groups form and get togethers and just a little bit more community around the whole thing. That's cool. Yeah. So, and you probably have a few more employees then too. Yeah. 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 The, uh, I think we're going to see a lot of growth here. We've just moved into a larger facility and uh, it's about three times space. Um, and uh, so we've got a lot of room to grow, can go into multiple shifts. And um, and as we do that, then that'll free us up to do even more development and, and continue to make the machine better and better and better. Um, so it's uh, we're just at the beginning of it. So it's pretty exciting, even though we're right. 14 years in. <laughs> Right. Hey, got to start somewhere, right? All right. Well, uh, do you want to tell my guests, uh, my listeners where to find Outrider USA? And- yeah. So, um, you can Google it Outrider USA. Um, just Google Outrider USA, or you can go to outridercoyote.com. Uh, that's our newer site. And, uh, there's a build button on there and you can, um, click and, and configure the machine and see the different colors and see the options change before your eyes. Um, so that's a cool tool that we just, um, got implemented there. Or if you go onto YouTube, you can look up outrider coyote and see all the different videos. That's where you can definitely learn the most about the machine. Right. No, you no Facebook or Instagram, right? Yeah. Yep. We use, uh, we use both of those. And, um, so you can find us on there as well. All right. Well, Thank you, Tom, for coming on and being a guest. It's been a fun pleasure learning about the Outrider Coyote. And I hope to see more of the Outrider in the outside world and on more hunting adventures with a lot more people. So, Thanks so much, Sean. Yeah, I appreciate it. and uh, It's cool to be on the podcast. So uh, hopefully we get to chat again. And I'm sure Chad has some Great sweet adventures. adventures rolling around his mind that he's planning so, so I'm right. sure you'll hear about it there right well thank you again and remember everyone stay adaptive mm-hmm.